You can find 2 Corinthians 12 on page 941. We're in the middle of this series on the solas. That's the Latin word for alone. The five solas summarize the main themes of the Reformation, which was a movement largely in the 16th century that fought to recover biblical teaching as the foundation of the beliefs and practices of the Christian church. Josh kicked us off um, two weeks ago with sola scriptura, the Bible alone is our source of authority. And then he continued with sola fide, salvation comes through faith alone, not by works. We can't earn our way into heaven, only faith in the life and death of Jesus provide us with access to salvation. And then today we look at sola gratia, grace alone. 2 Corinthians 12, just reading a couple of verses. Listen carefully. These are God's words. The Lord said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Lord, show us the, the reality of this paradox, that when we're weak, we're strong, that when we're weak, your power, the only real power that we can have access to, is made real, is um, manifested, is displayed, is enjoyed. Give us, work in us that humility of Christ that we might taste what this word describes in our own lives. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, First, a little context, a little background on how we got to these two verses that I just read. Uh, First, Paul is writing this letter to the believers in Corinth, modern-day Greece, and he's writing it from Macedonia, um, north along the Aegean coast. He's dealing with some opponents in the Corinthian church who are criticizing him, partly because he refuses to play their game of boasting about accomplishments and spiritual qualifications. Um, He starts that sort of self-defense in uh, earnest in chapters 10 and 11. And so they figure if Paul has nothing to boast about, then it's because he's really not who he claims to be. He's not this apostle who has authority over us, who can put us in our place and rebuke us, and we don't need to listen to him anymore. And Paul proceeds to not only refuse to play that game, but he decides to boast on his own about these kinds of things, chapter 11, about his imprisonments his beatings, his whippings, his stonings, his shipwrecks, the nights he spent without sleep, the days he went without food, his close encounters with death. Those are the things he chooses to boast about. And then, right before our two verses, in chapter 12, he describes a man he knows. That's sort of that strategy of saying, you know, so I have a friend who has this question, you know, to deflect focus from yourself. Um, Here's what Paul is getting at, ultimately, in this building argument. You want to talk about spiritual qualifications, I'll give you one. This friend of mine was caught up to the third heaven. 
He entered paradise itself. He heard things that mere humans can't even fathom. You want to talk about a spiritual resume. Paul is saying with this little bit of deflection, his friend has stuff at the very top of his resume that blows away anything these so-called Corinthian spiritual leaders have to boast about. But, verse 7, before our verse again, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh. We don't know what that thorn was. Biblical scholars, the best guess is it's, it was a, some sort of physical issue, chronic pain, maybe a, a disability that came uh, suddenly upon Paul. Whatever it was, um, he prayed that God would remove it three times, we're told. But he got this answer, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul went from this amazing encounter with God himself to being brought down low, humble once again. Why? The Lord knew pride as a disease can so easily overcome us. And so God mercifully provided this thorn, not as punishment, but as a reminder of his creatureliness, his humility. That's our foundation this morning. Paul comes to realize that he has nothing to brag about. Unlike his Corinthian opponents, the only thing he can brag about is what God has done in his life, and he's going to delight in those things that are on his spiritual resume, imprisonments and and stonings and shipwrecks, so that God might be exalted. Paul knows he can't qualify for spiritual power, let alone earn his own salvation by being good enough. Salvation is by grace alone through faith. Just as Paula read from Ephesians 2, just as we've been singing already this morning. That's why a thorn in the flesh was such a blessing. It nipped in the bud any temptation that might have been starting to blossom in Paul's sinful heart on his part to to think that he was strong enough, wise enough, skillful enough, self-sufficient. A broken body in a fallen world, this thorn in the flesh, maybe even served to remind Paul that his sin had disqualified him for this kind of spiritual leadership, let alone salvation. But God... Here at GRC, we say those are gospel words, but God. Listen to Paul um, right elsewhere in Ephesians chapter 2. But because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. God said to Paul, when you're weak... That's exactly where I need you to be. Exactly. I heard your prayer. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he got a clear answer. No, Paul, I need you to have that thorn because I know your heart. I know what will happen. When you are weak, that's when my power is made perfect. My grace is all you need. Instead of diving more deeply into a theological lesson on grace alone, what I want to do is show you what grace looks like in the church. And um, my reason echoes Philip Yancey in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace? He, he writes this, 
to borrow E.B. White's comment about humor, Charlotte's Web, um, Philip Yancey replaces humor with grace, and he writes, Grace can be dissected as a frog, but the thing dies in the process, and the innards are discouraging to any but the pure scientific mind. I have just read a 13-page treatise on grace in the New Catholic Encyclopedia, which has cured me of any desire to dissect grace and display its innards. I do not want the thing to die. For this reason, I will rely more on stories than on logical arguments. And for the same reason, I want to give you these snapshots of grace here at Grace Redeemer Church. We'll walk through a few pieces of who we are as a community to display this, snapshots of grace. Our family moved here in um, early 2004, and my job was to help replant this church 13 years ago. We had a core of about 50 or 60 people ready for a fresh start. And one of the uh, things I um, asked a, a core group of lay leaders to join me in early on was considering uh, the renaming of our church name. Because at the time, our name was Redeemer Presbyterian Church of New Jersey-Teaneck, which doesn't fit on legal forms, doesn't look good on the top of letterhead, and I didn't feel like was going to help us in reaching out to our neighbors. Kind of complicated. And so we spent a number of meal times um, gathered in brainstorming sessions, and we came up with Grace Redeemer Church. Why that name? First and foremost, because we wanted to emphasize with our name, with our logo, um, that everything this church is about and will be about in the future should be saturated with the gospel of grace. And then secondly, we each, each of us, some, some of them had history um, coming out of New York City. Each of us felt that it was proper to retain this connection to our roots, being planted from our mother church, Redeemer, New York City. And so, quite simply, Grace Redeemer Church. Up until recently, um, a Google search only brought up Grace Redeemer Teaneck. We were, we were unique. Now there's another Grace Redeemer Church, but it's in Northeast India, so I don't think there's any confusion there. You know, if they look us up in the States, they will find us. Um, but that, un- that unique name came out of those two elements. So we were very deliberate in naming our church. And we continue to be very deliberate and prayerful and strategic in trying to live out that name, to um, continue establishing a climate of grace or a culture of grace. What does that look like? Paul, the apostle, might ask, what does that smell like? Because earlier in this same letter, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, this is what he says, For we are to God the aroma, the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one we are an aroma that brings death, to the other an aroma that brings life. I don't know that you or I could adequately describe what life smells like, but I do know without asking you, we all know what death smells like that animal that crawled into your garage or attic and chooses to die there. You discover it a few days later. Um, That piece of meat that you forgot about, you were going to barbecue, sitting on the back of your refrigerator, starts to turn putrid. The uh, garbage bags from the cookout you had over the weekend, baking in a August sun out in the trash can on your driveway, that smells like death. 
You don't need a lesson. You, you know what that smells like. It's ugly. If I can adapt Paul's idea here, I would say this. When the church of Jesus Christ, from which the aroma of Christ should constantly be wafting, I love that word. You know, it's like chocolate chip cookies in the oven, wafting. If the church of Jesus Christ fails to display grace and instead displays judgment or harshness, looks down on failure, disdains weakness, that smells like death. How many people, and this is not a question for you, but it's a rhetorical question, how many people, especially in this um, coming to age generation, have left the church at large because so little grace is offered. So little grace wafts from the church of Christ. The, the expectation naturally is you come to church, you expect this sort of refreshment, this pleasing aroma, if we use Paul's imagery, and instead the, the expectations are dashed. Instead, you, you, you smell the opposite. It stinks around here. You know, people are sniping at one another. You know, there's a nastiness. There's an undercurrent of tension. There's there are unresolved issues that are, are keeping people from giving their all to the king before his throne. That, that smells ugly. But on the other hand, I know lots and lots of you have come back to the church and stayed willingly, joyfully, because you've tasted gospel grace here. The, the contrast is, uh, it speaks for itself. You know, and, and I know a good number of you have come to faith in Jesus Christ for the first time here at GRC, and one of the explanations I think fits most of your situations is that you've been drawn to a life of freedom and forgiveness. You've been allured by this aroma of grace, surprised in the best of ways, and grace is that treasure that only the church of Jesus Christ truly possesses. It can only be found here. Are, are there similarities outside of the church? Maybe. Are there things that might masquerade for grace temporarily? Of course. But grace is the treasure that God the Father has given to His bride, the church. How tragic, how ugly, how disgusting it is when we display the opposite of the aroma of life. But how glorious it is when God's grace is celebrated and highlighted and lived out and enjoyed and then overflows from our lives to the world who might be watching from the outside or comes to taste what we might have to offer. I think GRC does this well, but it's not because we've figured something out through our own ingenious strategies. It's not because we've invented something new. We've discovered the secret to the Christian life. It's not because of any of that at all. Theologian Richard Nybier in the last century wrote, the great Christian revolutions come not by the discovery of something that was not known before. They happen when somebody takes radically something that was always there. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, 
you're here this morning and you're struggling through some season of life, maybe it's years and years long, maybe it's decades, what you need is not new information. You don't need some expert to sort of diagnose everything and tell you, here's the prescription for figuring it out, you know, and then this person becomes larger than life, you know, they sort of function as a pseudo state. That's not what you need. You don't need some newfangled approach to grappling with life's problems, some kind of formula. That's not what you need. You and I need to more deeply grasp and receive and rest in something that has always been there, which is God's free offer of grace found through faith in Jesus Christ, His Son, our Lord. If you're here this morning and you don't yet trust Jesus as Lord and Savior, you're considering Christianity, you're curious, you're checking things out, we're always glad to have you here. We're always glad to answer any questions we might be able to help with. But know this, grace is the aroma of Christ that alone can be what pulls you into this relationship of faith with Jesus. We sometimes get in the way. We sometimes smell less than fresh, (laughs) spiritually speaking. Um, Don't gauge God by us. At best, you will see God in us um, most of the time. At worst, we'll screw up and we'll have to remind you, don't come because of us, come because of Him. But our purpose centrally is to point you to the only source of this free grace that exists that has been provided, which is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, More snapshots of our church. One of our five core values that I like to talk about um, on a regular basis is, is authentic community. We say in our materials, we long to be a real place for real people with real problems. And, and what we mean by that is we, we want to tear down the facades we don't want to be plastic Christians. We don't want to put up an image of whatever it is we think Christians in North Jersey in, in, the, you know, in the year 2017 are supposed to look like and act like. We want, to, we want to tear down those facades and just be real and just be honest with you. If we don't know something, we want to say, I have no idea. I'll try to help you, but I, I truly don't know. Um, and part of that authenticity is our prayerful attempts to cultivate a safe place, a place of refuge from the world and its values, from the whispers of the evil one, but also from shame and guilt, which sadly too often come from within the church. We want to provide a refuge where you can wrestle with your mess in light of the promise of God to forgive, to redeem, to make new. At the same time, we would say grace does not exclude tough love. It does not exclude being firm, sometimes in discipline. It doesn't mean that we are not going to take a firm stance on what is true versus what is false, what is right according to God's Word versus what is wrong. Grace encompasses all of that at the same time. But when we think about this picture of eternity, standing before the King who knows all things, who is holy and just in His character, 
whose law is broken every single time we sin. That image, that idea of standing before the holy judge of all the earth should be terrifying. It should strike us with fear of judgment and sentencing by this perfect judge. But God, the Father, has sent God the Son to take the place for sinners. Payment for sin has been made. God's justice has been satisfied for all who place our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. What I deserve is death, eternal separation from this holy God. Instead, what I receive by grace is forgiveness, is perfect love. No, absolutely not. Grace is not earned or deserved. No, absolutely not. There can be no conditions that human beings can satisfy. It is absolutely free in every sense of the word. So here's how grace might look in horizontal relationships as it's spilling over from us individuals. If you screw up and I tear you apart, or I react with bitterness, anger, revenge, what what I'm doing in my heart is I'm acting as if I am that much better, as if I would never do such a thing. I'm, I'm horrified that you have done this. That's part of that righteous indignation that is sinful that arises, that, um, that self-righteousness means I am um, so horrified because I put myself subconsciously into a totally different category. I would never do that. That means you're here on a lower rung and I'm here on a higher rung. And that means, vertically speaking, I fall for the illusion, I subject myself to the self-deception as a Christian who has received grace from God, I fall for the deception that actually I deserve something, maybe not all of it, but I got to this higher wrong, and therefore I look down on you and disdain you, and I am so self-righteously indignant because I'm up here from my efforts, and you're down here. When the opposite is true, grace is undeserved. The only thing I as a sinner have deserved, earned, is eternal separation from this holy God. It's, a, it's an issue of, of lack of understanding and embrace of grace at the root of why I get upset with you. On the other hand, maybe this more, looks more like grace in action. You screw up and I wrestle in prayer against my sinful inclinations because I know that my calling is to forgive you. Let's not pretend. Usually we can't do it right away. Pride, self-righteousness, we got to go to battle, right? But I'm going to be honest with you. I'm having a hard time getting over this. Pray for me. I don't want to be angry with you. I don't want to bear grudges, but right now I can't do that, right? Isn't that honest? Isn't that authentic community? But I need to move towards that rather than justifying myself to marinate in my own um, angry juices. And eventually, I can listen. I can support you. I can grieve with you at your sin because I've done the same thing in other situations to other people. I know what it's like to screw up, in other words. And that doesn't mean what you did is okay. It doesn't mean we say, oh, not a big deal, you know, just get over it. That's not biblical um, 
sorrow. That's worldly sorrow, 2 Corinthians. But we call sin what it is, and then as a community, grace in action means we will walk with you on this path of healing and restoration and forgiveness as those who have walked that road ourselves. That's real. Years ago, I had this guy in my 20-something ministry um, at, in my training years, and when he didn't show up on Sunday mornings for our 20-something class, I knew that he'd been out drinking the night before. It wasn't that he couldn't wake up in time, but he told me on several occasions, Peter, when I screw up yet again, I just can't come to church and face God. And try as I might, I couldn't help him understand the wrong-headed approach that he had to grace because he was never worthy of standing in the presence of the king, sober, obedient, generous, servant-hearted or not, or drunk. He was never worthy. Why would he think he was any less worthy of not worthy just because he had screwed up yet again? His issue was less an addiction to a physical substance in this particular instance, I'm not saying in general, and more an issue of not quite grasping fully enough the gospel of grace. This is why I talk about Celebrate Recovery on a regular basis, or at least at at, at every chance I get as one of our central core ministries. It's not just one among several things that fill our calendar. It happens every Wednesday night here at 7 p.m. with a meal. You're always invited. But um, I recently had a conversation with um, um, another church leader at another church who was describing his church as an emotionally unsafe place to be broken. And one of us asked him about the Celebrate Recovery ministry that was listed on their website, and he said, actually, nobody even knows about it. Nobody knows that they have a Celebrate Recovery. How fitting that those two things go together. Because the attitude, if we put two and two together, is that brokenness is something for certain people to deal with over there. We'll give you a room in the church. We'll give you space on the calendar. We'll even put you on the website in case people are looking. But you people go over there, fix yourselves, um, and, and we're happy with that kind of approach. I'm, I'm making some educated guesses here, and I don't mean to throw uh, them under the bus, but in contrast, a culture of grace attempts to make it perfectly okay to say, I'm messed up too. How about you, Werner? (laughs) I got hurts, habits, and hang-ups, and I need to join you on Wednesday nights. I'm screwed up. So the question is not whether you qualify to show up for a free meal on Wednesday nights. The question is, Can you and I be honest enough about our own messes to put pride aside and to join with fellow sinners and call sin for what it is? We're broken and we need healing that can only come through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's linked to our counseling ministry. When I encourage you to come in for counseling and you say yes, one of the first things I very often try to communicate is a commendation to you because you have chosen something very healthy. You've made a a great decision that is a marker of maturity. 
to be honest about your brokenness, your struggle, your temptations, your sin patterns, whatever it may be, and to say, I need help. Point me to Jesus. Point me to the power that alone can um, help me transform, change, seek a new path. You're seeking health rather than pretending or hiding. You're living out authentic community. We're all messed up. Let's stop pretending. Let's just get help. Counseling involves a sinner sharing with a fellow sinner or two. And another thing, a second thing I try to emphasize early on in my meetings with counselees is whatever you are going to describe to me about your path of brokenness, I'm not going to be surprised. Why? Not because our situations are identical, but because um, no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. So that means the seed of sin that resulted in your path of brokenness exists in my heart. And the only reason, if it's the case, that I haven't gone the same exact path is the grace of God. Very often I have. Very often I I can open up my own struggles with whatever you're talking about and say, you know what? Well, yours is like vanilla, but mine's French vanilla with, you know, bean specks. There's a lot of similarity here. And that helps us get on, on common ground and say, okay, let's look at the throne together rather than me sort of join the cross and looking down at you. That, that doesn't work. We look to Jesus together, unfit to sit or, uh, or, or kneel at the foot of the cross, but declared holy, forgiven, righteous because of what the Savior has done. Counseling is aligned with everything else we do that maybe falls under different labels like shepherding and discipling and teaching and fellowship and community, all rooted in gospel grace, all saying we can't do this, but He can. We will screw up, forgive us, but He will redeem it. Grace does not bring down the hammer. Grace does recognize God's holy standard. Grace does call sin, sin, and doesn't try to explain it away. But grace trusts then that gospel mercy triumphs over judgment through the cross of Jesus Christ. And then gospel grace trusts that same power that raised Jesus from the dead to be at work in our lives, changing us. One more snapshot. I think the best example of this culture of grace we're trying to demonstrate, it's our twice yearly installments of grace stories. And they are intentionally named grace stories. They're not stories of my conquering the mountain, you know, the the year I overcame. (laughs) That's not what they're called. They're they're, I am weak, but he is strong stories. They're I could never do this, but he is doing it through me stories. And over the years, well over 35 men and women have from GRC have stood right here for both services and courageously shared their personal accounts of brokenness and temptation and failure and sin against them in order to point you who are going through similar struggles to the only solution that exists for making all things new, the gospel of grace, access through faith in Jesus Christ. We don't shy away from the mess of life. We address it head on because grace frees us from the delusion of thinking that we can handle the weight of the world. I'm okay. No, 
Great grace says you're not okay, and it's okay to admit you're not okay. And when a grace story giver stands here, and the tissues are being passed around, and the tears are flowing, we shatter that illusion, story by story, that we're a community of okay, cleaned up, self-sufficient people. No. We loudly proclaim we can't do it. We would have given up long ago, but God, but God, gospel words that point us to gospel grace. Last thought, if you can't imagine asking for financial assistance, maybe it's because of a church retreat. You say, you know what, it's beyond me. I know they said that there are scholarships, but I don't want to ask or a women's retreat or a men's retreat, or help to pay bills through a stretch that is longer than you thought of unemployment, if you can't even imagine swallowing your pride and asking for help, dot, 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 for some of you, it's just getting a free meal. You know, we have a meals ministry. That, no, I'm okay. I only broke 13 bones. I'll just, I'll figure it out. You know, I don't need any help. That's the pride. We got some doozies in this church. <laughs> we just want to bring you a meal. If you can't even imagine receiving help like that, that is free, that is not earned, that is an undeserved blessing that you might not be able to return in kind, that sometimes gets people. You know, I can't pay it back, and therefore I'm not going to receive it. If that is your reality, then you need to more fully grasp the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm not saying you're not a Christian. You might not be, in which case we want to point you to grace. But for many of you, you are already in Christ, but this aspect, just like my friend who went drinking on a Saturday night and doesn't show up at church in the morning, because there's a direct connection between your unwillingness to receive grace, let's use the biblical word, and a connection between that and your inadequate understanding of God's love, which is free which is offered to you without cost, without condition. Listen to the gospel from the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 55. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me, and eat what is good, and you will delight in the richest of fare. The Lord says, you have no money? Good. You have exactly what it takes to buy what is most valuable in life and for eternity. Your hands are empty? Perfect. That's exactly what I need. You have no gifts, no skills, no intelligence, no wisdom? I can use you. (laughs) This is the paradoxical gospel of grace. Charity or a handout. Those are sort of negative terms that we use that prevent us from receiving with open hands, with no ability to return in kind. But people, that is a picture of the gospel. The grace of God is absolutely free. Can we say that enough times? There are no conditions to be met. There are no payments that could be big enough. That makes 2 Corinthians 12, 9, in my opinion, one of the most reassuring verses in all the Bible. 
One of the most hope-filled verses in all the Bible because it meets you where you are. It doesn't sugarcoat pain, suffering, turmoil, mourning, loneliness, failure. It doesn't sugarcoat any of that. It recognizes your reality as a fallen person in a fallen world, and it offers you not a simplistic formula, some trite solution, but it offers you the assurance the promise straight from God himself that he knows your pain, he cares, and he provides exactly what's needed. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. You failed, not a problem. God says, I will restore you. Your suffering, wait, because I am making all things new. You are feeling weak. That is precisely where I need you because there my power is made perfect. Let's pray. Lord, in our context here in North Jersey, Metro New York, we drink the Kool-Aid of the culture that makes us strive for a name for ourselves through education, through work, through accomplishments, through activity and busyness. Forgive us, Lord. We're acting like the Corinthian leaders. Make us more like your servant Paul, who knew he had nothing to boast about. And then lead us to boast about Christ and his perfect righteousness and his obedience and his sacrifice, which were none of our doing, but all of which is offered to us simply by grace through faith. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.